Welcome to AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get support and guidance through the chaos of parenting. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, I have a really awesome guest that I invited on the show to talk about a topic that I have discussed before, but I feel like we don't talk enough about, and that is specifically moral and harm OCD. Now, our kids' OCD can morph into any topic, any theme, so you don't want to really get stuck on what subtype of OCD your child has, but I do feel like it's really important to have a conversation specifically about those two different types of OCD or how OCD can manifest in those ways, because those are the themes that are not being talked about. Those are the themes that people don't realize are OCD. And I feel like in my practice, at least those are the types of OCD that I'm seeing pop up first more than any other theme. And they're missed, unfortunately, more than any other type of OCD thought or behavior. And so that's concerning to me because those kids are getting mislabeled, they are getting misunderstood, and the damage that's happening to the child throughout their life because they are not being recognized as having OCD is huge. So I invited the perfect person to talk about this. I invited Aaron Harvey, who, for those of you who don't know him, he is the creator of intrusivethoughts.org. And he's also the creator of madeofmillions.com. He is an incredible, inspiring, passionate person who has really shaken up the OCD community and made it raw and real and provided tons of resources to people who need it directly. And he's very, very inspiring to talk to because he is passionate and he really wants to flip OCD upside down and get it to be more understood and getting people to talk more about it and take the stigma and the taboo away from OCD. I am totally aligned with his mission and inspired by all that he has done. For those of you that don't know him, Aaron Harvey was running a very successful ad agency. He's a very successful businessman, but underneath all that, he was suffering with OCD for over 20 years in silence. And he came more public about his struggles. I think it was like five or six years ago. And in that time, in that very short time, he has done an incredible amount of work using his leverage of who he is and his connections and his skills in marketing and reaching the masses to get out the message about OCD. And especially also, I think these other taboo topics that no one's supposed to talk about that are a big part of OCD. And so I had a great discussion with him. Um, I was excited to be able to have him on the show and for him to come and talk to us about how do you parent a child with moral or harm OCD? What's it like for your child? What's going on in their head? And how do you approach it? And then we did get into a bigger philosophical conversation about the need you know, for grassroots efforts and for people like me and you who are raising children with OCD and have OCD rampant in our families for us to do our own stuff to get more out there for people to understand that OCD can be talked about, that it's not an embarrassing thing. And that, you know, one out of 200 kids have it. I actually think that number is completely skewed because nobody wants to talk about their struggles. And a a lot of therapists, unfortunately, are not trained in diagnosing OCD. So there's so many people that are walking around misdiagnosed who probably have OCD as well. So I am going to let you listen to my interview with Aaron Harvey, and I hope that you find it as interesting, insightful, and inspiring as I did. Here's our conversation. Well, I want to welcome Aaron to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I get most questions on moral and harm OCD, Um, and really OCD is OCD. It doesn't matter, but... With those particular subtypes, I think parents just completely, they miss it. They don't understand it. They, um, it freaks them out the most, obviously. So I thought it'd be great to have you on um, and talk about your own experience growing up as a kid and, and what it was like having some of those thoughts. Cool. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's a great, a great question. How, uh, how specific in my language can I be on this uh, fine programming here? It's it's PG. <laughs> okay, uh, I will keep it PG. So, um, but I think that's obviously a, a funny way to start it off because the reality <laughs> is, is like none of it's PG, right? And that's why it's so scary. Exactly. Um, so you know watering it down in terms of like, you know, hoping that, I guess putting any level of severity on it or judging it harder because of the nature of it is, is a pointless exercise. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think a good, a good way to, to think about moral OCD through a couple of, of my own personal experiences is, so I grew up in a, in a Christian household and it's a private school. Um, and at a very young age, unknowing to, to me or my family, I had started to get very concerned about the morality of all of my choices and whether or not I was going to be seen as uh, pure or sinning or whatever that was. So, you know, example, uh, going way back, maybe being in fourth grade or fifth grade, and uh, being at school and there being like a communion or something like that. So I had read or was told one time that there was a Bible verse that was like, you have to go to communion, communion with a clean heart and a clean mind. Otherwise, it's like punitive, right? So whatever I heard and whether that was factual or not, I'm sitting in those pews panicking to the point where I'm actually avoiding going up or terrified that I have to go up and can't explain why I didn't go up if I don't go up because I'm trying to get my mind right. So I'm trying to make sure my last thought was pure and wasn't a quote sinful thought or something like that. And that's just a small example, but that can present a child with a tremendous amount of anxiety and sort of start the avalanche of something like, well, every time I tried to make sure my thoughts were pure, I had an intrusive thought that wasn't pure. And then I couldn't go up and do that thing that maybe I wanted to do or I was being told to do. And that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg for how that can avalanche into something that controls someone's day-to-day -day actions across everything that they do. Um, and so we hear about this all the time through, you know, our community and our websites and stuff is just like, people who are trying to get things right and do the right thing. And I think that's why you see a lot of, of, of religion infused with obsessive compulsive disorder, because uh, there's a lot of maybe passion or f fear around faith. And the idea that someone who does have an anxious mind and it is kicking off intrusive thoughts they're trying to control that, to control their own experience with their faith, whatever faith that is. And that creates a tremendous amount of anguish uh, over years, you know, that can create a lot of anguish. Yeah. And I think when it's religion, a lot of times parents' knee-jerk reaction is to like bring them to the church leaders or to talk about, you know, you just need to pray harder. I have a lot of parents that I work with where initially they'll just tell them, you know, you need, just need to pray on it. And then it's like, they just kind of create another compulsion. And then the child's like praying like every five seconds and they don't see where, I mean, obviously, cause it's so counterintuitive. They don't see where that's the thought is about OCD and not about religion. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that's a good point because, and I can, I can see this from the side of being uh, in a religious institution or being a person of faith, whatever that is, is that, um, your faith typically teaches you to lean harder into your faith in times of uncertainty and fear and things of that, that nature. And it could feel counterintuitive to say, uh, conjure up all these thoughts that scare you, which you are already identifying maybe as sinful or wrong or inappropriate. Conjure all those thoughts up and sit there and live with them, right? That then is very counterintuitive to just pray and hope that the thoughts go away. But what happens is, um, you know, people's fear that they might be losing their faith or the faith of their child might, their child's faith might be uh, compromised. That fear ends up, to your point, putting them through the same processes that are creating the same problems and only exacerbating them. I know what it's like being a kid 
and you know being so innocent so young and and laying in bed and trying to say the lord's prayer before i go to bed but before each before i got done i would have an intrusive sexual thought about god and that was such a terrifying uh anxiety spiking moment that i would go back and redo the prayer and i'd redo it until i fell asleep be a hundred times uh until i fell asleep and i never was able to say it because my mind was always going to kick that thing off and so i think it's something that isn't discussed enough. Um, so I think it's an important topic is that when you combine uh, faith and a goal to have some type of faith with OCD treatment, it is an exacerbating problematic maneuver that only makes the situation worse. And in my personal opinion, only drives that person farther away from their faith because it makes the whole experience so exhausting, so scary that it leads to you avoiding or abandoning uh, that ideology altogether. So finding a safe way to do exposure therapy, to do mindfulness, you know, all these things that are not the works of the devil, they're just behavioral tools or techniques. Um, even if they challenge aspects of your faith, uh, that is important. Um, I think of like, you know, ERP or exposure therapy, you know, where you're slowly exposed to things and you get better. Um, it's really scary. I think from, from a religious institution perspective, because if you, because some of the tactics that can be used can include doing things like looking at pornographic information, um, can include things, uh, like cursing God or doing things. Um, the, so they feel so counterintuitive and so wrong that you would never have your child do that. Um, but the reality is your, your child's mind is kicking off all these thoughts that most people just let pass, but they have such an anxiety reaction to the thoughts and they want to do right. And they want to do it right so hard that when it happens, they try to get rid of them and they only get stronger. The only way to get rid of them is to be truly mindful and let them exist or to challenge them. And so anyways, it's, it's a very tricky, it's a very tricky balance. I do think it's a fundamental mistake. It is uh, an ignorant lapse of judgment to uh, dismiss behavioral therapy and try to replace it with the church. It does not work for this condition. And I say that with all due respect to anyone of any religion it doesn't work, and, and I hope that you open your mind to some of these other ideas because your child is suffering. Yeah, and I think it's a good message because um, I think sometimes it's, it gets very, very muddy and confused. And I think just in general with like moral and harm themes, parents do not, do not get exposures. It seems like I have to sell the parents and the child. First, I have to sell them on the diagnosis itself because I think, unfortunately, therapists are not well-trained on this. Mm -hmm. It's really, really scary that most people who hear about harm or moral OCD or those type of themes hear it on my podcast or hear it on my YouTube channel or hear from your website, intrusivethoughts.org, and not from their therapist. Most of the time, it could be really a slippery slope because they are assessed for suicidal ideation. They're assessed for homicidal ideation. They're assessed for pedophilia. They're assessed for, you know, psychosis. They're put on the wrong medications. They're sometimes psychiatrically institutionalized. It's very, very scary. And so if we can get kids younger, I mean, the kids that I treat are like five and six, and they're already worried that they're lying they're already confessing very clearly obvious OCD symptoms that if they're put in the wrong hands, they're going to be treated improperly for years and years. That's super yeah. scary. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the early detection is the most critical, um, the most critical component of it all. You know, in my personal journey, you know, mine uh, in hindsight probably went back to 10, 12 years old in various capacities um, but over the years intensified in a lot of different ways. You know, my themes morphed and changed. They still exist today, but it took me over 20 years to realize that I was not a homicidal, pedophilic, psychopathic killer, rapist, you know, on and on and on. And um, uh, that's a huge problem in, in the industry with how we brand and communicate these disorders and et cetera. And that's something that we're passionate with 
made millions of working on is like, how do we repackage and rebrand these so people get earlier access? But on the early detection front, it's simple math. It's almost everybody reports having a random unwanted thought. One in 50 is likely going to have a severe anxiety reaction to that thought and to, to question it and to try to get rid of it and wonder how that judges their character and or what one way or another. And they're going to spend upwards of 10 to 20 years with misdiagnosis or no diagnosis thinking that they're a terrible person. They will develop comorbid depression. I don't think it's possible to have undiagnosed OCD and not be uh, depressed on some severity scale from you know, periods of major depression, chronic depression. Um, and they are more likely to self-harm. They are more likely to, to abuse substances. Um, they're more likely to commit suicide. And so that all can be uh, mitigated by intervening in that eight to 12 range or younger, if it makes sense. Um, but intervening in that range with really simple messaging, Hey, everybody has what you might consider a weird or crazy or unwanted thought. If it gives you anxiety and you start thinking about a lot or trying to get rid of it, then let's go talk to this person who specializes in CBT or ERP or, you know, in treating this type of, you know, anxiety condition. And that's it. It's a simple message and it, it doesn't live anywhere. No one's received it. And um, the thoughts are so taboo that everyone uses the internet to secretly search. Everyone's afraid that their secret searches are going to be one day published by Google or by a hacker. So you've created, you've boxed people into this environment when they're going into high school, they're in middle school, they've already have all these questions about life, they have questions about sexuality, they have questions about everything that are all natural organic questions that everyone is having. But they, because they have an anxiety condition and their brain might kick off extra thoughts, show them, present them all situations from all angles or say, are you really straight? Are you really gay? Are you really this? Are you really that? Um, you just looked at that kid. Does that mean that you like, did you look at them for too long? Like they were naked in your room getting changed on the bed. Like what are their brains are so hyperactive and so busy um, in, in, in dealing with this presentation of fear that, I mean, the relief of just knowing that this is a normal thing that a lot of people deal with is a game changer. It's a game changer. And it's not part of public policy. It's not part of public education. Uh, it's not spoken about in homes. We can talk about building awareness, but we're largely building awareness among middle class and, and privileged white families in you know, uh, suburban areas. We're not talking about getting this into single families, into low socioeconomic situations. There are so many misses with this message. And if there is one message, it is this early detection and that your thoughts are okay, you are not your thoughts. You can make your own choices. Yeah, I totally agree, obviously. And I, and I think the front line are the parents because I'm seeing it, I'm seeing it even younger. And I think it gets missed because it's very subtle when they're really little. It's, you know, mom, I think I might've lied. Mom, I think I might've given you the middle finger. And like you said, the, the topics, and we can talk about them. I meant PG, like just your language, <laughs> you know, but yeah, um, like the topics and the themes get, and I always warn parents when I see a five or a six year old, I say the topics and themes are going to get more graphic and more disturbing as they learn more about life because that's just what OCD is like. So, yeah. you know, as they learn, as they go through puberty, you know, the sexual thoughts are going to be there. And if it, if it's inappropriate and taboo, OCD is going to present that for them. Yeah. And I would imagine that most kids and, and I, I didn't go through therapy as a kid. And in fact, in some ways, I'm glad I didn't share any of my thoughts because I think I would have been, Baker acted or, or medicated or put on suicide watch or put on any of these things because no one understood the condition and, and what it meant. Um, but when it comes to the nature of the thoughts at the highest level, it's completely irrelevant. It's um, you could watch a YouTube video about someone talking about something silly, like the word, the game, she was playing a game and the word of the game started popping up in her head over and over and over again. And the game took over her entire life and made her want to commit suicide. So like, that's not a severe, um, uh, or like a dark thought per se. Um, but it's just as severe in its presentation as me thinking about or having repetitive thoughts about, you know, rape and incest in my family. 
And, yeah. and I think if the more that parents can recognize that your brain is going to produce, your child's brain is going to produce and present the worst thing possible to that child. The thing that appears would be in the moment uh, against whatever their personal goals, ambitions, uh, or morals or values are. And it's going to present something that challenges that. And then if you give any pay, pay any mind to it, it's going to challenge it again and harder and harder and harder and harder. And it's going to get very, very dark in context and very ugly. Um, you know, it's not just about sexuality and pedophilia. It's graphic images of, uh, you know, you're trying to pay attention in class or the teacher's talking to you and like you're having graphic flashes of raping a child or doing something that is totally against your, your moral character and who you believe you are as a person and you're no longer paying attention to the teacher or the class you're sitting there thinking like how do I get this horrific thought out of my head and am I really going to harm a child one day and should I kill myself to prevent this from happening or should I never have kids or should I avoid relationships or should I avoid like so you know just the, the nature of the thought is completely irrelevant to the diagnosis and the management of the condition treatment of the condition. It is, however, important for parents to recognize that these thoughts are dark. They yeah. are the things, they, they are your fears. It's like walking through a nightmare. You know, the thing that you, you really don't want to happen. Or maybe it's even more existential. I think that's a huge problem that doesn't get discussed a lot, right? Like, you're constantly in search for certainty. So can I be certain that God does or doesn't exist? My personal belief is no, I can't be certain about anything. Um, can I be certain that I'm not in any way uh, attracted to men? Uh, I can't be 100% certain, but I feel like I'm a straight man. But when you have OCD, uh, it doesn't really matter whether you're gay or straight. It's that your brain is telling you you're not the thing that you believe you are. And that is, again, this constant, these broader things around religion, around values and morals, uh, relationships, huge problems. Is this the right person? Um, do, they, do I feel like I love them right now? How much do I feel like I love them? Like, you know, I know what it's like to be in a marriage where I spent, you know, almost every waking moment looking at this person and determining whether or not I felt I was in love with her enough in that moment to continue the relationship or not continue the relationship or like that constant search for certainty is what the mind, it's the game that the mind plays and you've got to have tools that help you just ignore it. Yeah. <laughs> this is the goal. Just ignore it. You know, if my brain tells me like you, let's say I'm a devout Christian, my brain tells me, well, you hate Jesus or um, flashes an image of me having sex with, Jesus while he's bleeding on the cross or something horrific like that doesn't mean that uh, I don't need to allow that to that to interfere with with maybe my personal faith I don't need to feel like I'm judging myself or that I can't walk up to communion or that I can't or that I need to ask for forgiveness for that or this any other stuff you know yeah um, I, I think what happens is that when it's the taboo stuff I think that parents because no one's talking about it. And so like in the parenting groups, you know, that I'm in and they're all talking about OCD, no one wants to talk about these darker thoughts. And so even in the OCD community, those parents are feeling kind of ostracized and alienated. And so they, they don't want to talk about it because they think, well, no one's talking about this, these kind of thoughts. And so yeah. my child must be misdiagnosed or must be like, you know, a sociopath because these are not thoughts that are talked about. And so I think we need to normalize it you know, that, mm -hmm. you know, yes, it's all OCD, but this is part of OCD and it's part of OCD with kids. I think people don't want to talk about that. And they come into my office or they, in my Facebook group with a lot of shame because they'll say, you know, we're not homophobic. I don't know why he's so worried that he's gay. I mean, we would love him anyway. And I'll say, that's not the point. I think you're missing the point. It's just about doubt right. of who he is. And I think there's a, there's a lot of shame that goes on a lot of hiding. And so normalizing it for the parents so that they can start talking about it so that the kids can open up because they don't want to tell their parents. Yeah. They can see that shock in their face. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there is no other way to manage this condition or manage a loved one or be able to, than to just 
fully adopt the bizarre and dark nature of what the disorder is. There's just no point in hiding any aspect of it. It's just a complete waste of everybody's time. And again, it has nothing to do with the nature of thoughts. That doesn't mean the person is on a uh, higher severity of anxiety. It doesn't mean the person is at a higher likelihood of acting on the thoughts. It doesn't mean that uh, the person has a, uh, a more loose moral ground or it doesn't mean any of that. It's just whatever happens, happens, you know, like I have, I mean, I'm 30, I'm 38 now, right? I'm dealing with this for like a long time and still dealing with it for a long time. And I probably at this point have all kinds of themes from a lot of I mean, harm is a big one for me. Self-harm, suicide, suicidal thoughts and ideation, um, harming other people, harming strangers, harming loved ones, killing people, um, pedophilia, I mean, the works, like all of it. And I think it's my ability, which I've only learned in the last handful of years since I realized I have OCD, was like my ability to just let the thoughts pass. And I think one way to frame ERP that um, I don't think really is, is discussed, but it's something to explore is that in my personal opinion, um, ERP is a stepping st- stool to get to mindfulness. Mindfulness obviously is the act of just letting your thoughts pass and not reacting to them. That's the goal. So for many people, though, the anxiety is so high that even the idea of closing your eyes and meditating, even just closing your eyes for five seconds is terrifying because you're going to be bombarded by all that stuff that you don't want to see, that you try to stay busy avoiding by reading your phone and getting involved in a thousand things to avoid your what's in your head. So the idea of sitting down and closing your eyes is an extremely challenging situation. And there are baby steps that can help you get to that mindfulness state. And that's what ERP is. It's, it's a step-by-step approach to achieving mindfulness. Um, and uh, so, you know, teaching kids um, at, at a young age how to sit and meditate and, hey, if you have thoughts that come up that scare you, just let them pass. Don't follow them. And like that actual practice would be life changing for so many kids, like life changing. That's not some like hippie dippy BS. That's like life changing tool that everyone should be learning. And then when the severity is there and they're stuck in a loop and they're stuck in a pattern, like ERP and things like that can help out. Yeah. And I I do agree. I think mindfulness is a tool that most people are terrified of you know, because that's like the opposite of what they want. Um, so many kids are so busy trying to distract themselves. And then I, like a lot of times I'll have kids just sit, like if they're really advanced and they're doing okay, you know, that final step is teaching them mindfulness of turn everything off and just sit. And they're like, Oh, I can't do that. You know, it's scary. And so I think we could teach that from a young age. I wish they taught it in schools. I think that'd be actually really, really helpful in general. Yeah. Yeah. And the opportunity to, um, you know, it was just something that uh, Stu um, and OCD stories guy and I were talking about, it's like, you know, these nonprofit organizations have uh, had millions of dollars per year since I've been experiencing this condition, but have fundamentally failed at getting any of this introduced in school as basic learning information. And it takes people like us and the parents listening here to actually do the work because it's not being done. And um, there are plenty of resources there are plenty of tools. There's your podcast, there's our website, there's all kinds of stuff on the internet and um, there are worksheets and there's brochures and there's downloadable guides. And we've actually spent a ton of time um, rebuilding uh, or building out a large early detection toolkit for parents and teachers that we'll have uh, eventually. And it takes champions to go in and get this stuff integrated in schools or create little task force or bring it to your faith organization or your Sunday school or whatever it is. Like, but without that effort, this is just an endless loop. And the only person that loses is the kid. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I think we just all have to, be aware of that and start doing our part because 
getting it to the to the schools is important, but even just talking to the teens, um, you know, people making YouTube videos and reaching mm-hmm. kids directly who are searching privately, quietly in their bedroom late, late at night. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you know, the message just needs to be gotten out there because when you treat it, like when I teach little kids or I teach the parents how to do ERP and mindfulness and, you know, just acceptance, you know, train them for life. You know, you see them for a little while, you teach the parents, you teach the child and it's not rocket science. I think this stuff is super simple to learn, Mm -hmm. but then they're good to go. You know, Mm -hmm. I see kids, I'll see kids at like six and then maybe I'll see them at 16, just, you know, they hit a bump, but they have all the tools, you know, versus someone who is depressed and suicidal because they don't, they think they're crazy and disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You said, I think that the word tools is really important. Like in in a theoretical sense, like they're carrying around the toolkit. They learn some strategies that become real time tools. And I think when I originally was thinking about, okay, therapy, I guess I go to X amount of sessions to achieve X outcome. And I think a lot of parents look at it that way. Uh, or anyone really does. But I think the the real way to look at it, especially in an earlier sense, is I'm going to go to X amount of sessions so that my child can learn, can basically put this little toolkit in their pocket and carry it around with them for the rest of their life. They might need to go get it checked up every now and then or get it questioned or retool it or put some oil in it or whatever. But like at the end of the day, I use the principles of exposures uh constantly yeah as soon as i have a new stimulus which is weekly or more um depending on how active my brain is let's say it presents a new horror to me and if i feel myself that oh i might avoid this because of that or i might do this because of that i don't want to deal with that thought that's when i immediately now i just intervene and i go wait a minute i'm just going to sit here and i'm going to think about that for the next five minutes i'm going to make it worse if you think like what I said earlier about, you know, some sexual thing is bad, I'm going to make it times 500. I'm going to make it the sickest thing I can intentionally and possibly come up with. And next thing you know, I'm not really thinking about that thing anymore. Exactly. Because I just sort of beat it. Yeah. I mean, that is completely, and I really wish that more therapists had this perspective that we are, like when I see a, a kid, I say, I'm training you. I'm training you to be your own therapist because this is, this is not going to go away but you're going to learn how to really manage it. And, yeah. and then slowly backing up and just saying, what do you think you should do next? What will be your exposure? You know, and right. kind of like more like a coach, because right. I think we don't want people living in therapy forever. We don't want it to be this magical, you know, special thing. It's something that can be that you can train a child and you can support them. And then they learn how to do it themselves. I mean, right. That's what I do with my own kids who have OCD. Mm. I'm like, what exposure do you think you should do? You know, they'll come back to me and they'll say, mom, I just did an exposure because they get a ticket, you know? So nice. And then you know, <laughs> they're creating it, you know, at seven and nine, they're creating their own exposures and they're just, they're just making me aware and, you know, so they can get something for it. But yeah. At 25, they're going to know what to do. Well, I would also argue that these tools are like, I mean, I run, I run a business in New York city. Uh, I run a creative agency for 10 years I work with amazing brands on very high, you know, profile things. Very fortunate to work on that and do a lot of business strategy, do lots of presentations, talk, do talks around the world. And at the end of the day, exposure to fear is one of the greatest tool sets you could possibly have. It doesn't matter why you're trying to pursue a marathon or you're trying to surf a really big wave that you're afraid to surf or you're trying to present uh, in front of your boss for the first time, or you're presenting in front of 5,000 people, the, the currency here is fear. It's fear that this thought means something. It's fear that this thought might uh, force me or I might lose control or whatever and do something that's against my will or could put me in jail or could hurt someone I love or whatever. And that, that structure is exactly the same as the fear that we all fear when we have to go do a big presentation, it's no different. So the idea that even in the employment world, in the business world, uh, your child will one day understand that if they're avoiding a presentation, it's because they're probably afraid to do it and that maybe they need to take an incremental approach. And so they might have their own idea like, Hey, um, you know, a couple of my coworkers, will you stay late and let me present this to you and see how I feel before I go present it to my boss? Like that is the exact same 
structured is no different. It is an incremental way to approach fear. Yeah. And we all have it on, on multiple levels. And I think teaching, teaching kids or just human beings to, to walk through fear, you know, instead of avoid fear, just in general, is just a beautiful, a beautiful perspective on life because you're going to miss out on so much if you're sitting avoiding everything. Yeah. And I think avoidance is, you know, of course, there's all symptoms that we can break out into a thousand different, uh, you know, examples of symptoms, checking and this and that and whatever and all these things. But um, avoidance is the currency that I see run through uh, PTSD, traumas, uh, generalized anxiety, social phobias, uh, phobias, social anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, hoarding, like all of these different conditions where there is an anxiety component. Um, the idea of avoiding something you would do otherwise. You would probably throw out those 1,400 useless uh, toilet paper uh, rolls, but you can't because you have some fear around the fact that if you throw them out, you might be missing on opportunity X or Y or Z. Or you have that fear with PCSD about being in a, in a, going to a concert event with loud music and, and being in a tight space with 2000 people, but you ultimately want to go see that band. So it's no different. And, and you could, you could even bring that back to the moral side and the faith side, which is you may want to have uh, a relationship with a particular faith, but all this stuff gets in the way of it. So by addressing the fears associated with it, you actually can go and pursue uh, a deeper relationship with that faith. So it's all the same. It's just, yeah. it's, it's all the same. And we can, we can put it in whatever buckets we want to put it in for the purpose of insurance reimbursement or the DSM and, and, and the fact that people sit around and vote on what goes in what bucket. I mean, this is, this is, there, there's such a level of BS to all this. There's, there's really, there is advantage to the way that our society has tried to group and bucket information to better understand symptomology and to better try to target therapies and target medications and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, most people that I speak to in the professional spectrum, psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, et cetera, um, are largely, um, uh, you know, look at the DSM and these bespoke disorders and all of these things that keep, you know, piling up um, as uh, not as important as understanding symptomology and understanding severity. And uh, when you have symptomology that's basically avoidance and that works across a spectrum of, of things in the DSM, even into our own basic internal lives um, and how we process fear uh, or severity that's so severe that the kid can't leave their room, they can't leave their bed. Um, that's when you, you try to try to treat the symptoms, you try to treat the severity in, in an incremental way. Yeah. And, and it's important for, I think, kids or just people in general to know that it doesn't matter what new theme or new issue is popping up. It's the same thing. You know, in my house, I have social anxiety. I'm doing exposures for that. You know, and my kids' themes change and we do exposures for that. And when I talk to kids, it's like the same stuff is going to be, you're going to be able to apply the same stuff no matter what. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty simple when you start to like really water it down. It's yeah. you know, exposing yourself and, you know, accepting and poking back, you know, yeah. those are, are kind of the three things that you're going to want to do no matter what it is, you know, and no matter what uh, category you're in. Yeah. And I, mean, I think having, you know, when I figured out that what I was dealing with was OCD and uh, it was a very unhealthy time in my life, I leaned back into surfing, which is my, my passion. I mean, I, I also a dog like all these things are very important to me holistically I work a lot that helps me um, but surfing really there's so many parallels to the uncertainty of paddling out in the ocean the uncertainty of dropping in on a wave and maybe hitting a reef or there being a shark or this or that or whatever all that is there's so much uncertainty that you can't actually do that sport unless you just go do it and uh, it can eat you up real quick if you're out there and you get in the wrong headspace it becomes dangerous so it's about being out there and learning to maintain your headspace uh, with whatever level of, of, of surfing that you're, you're comfortable doing, right? Like I've been out times where I was terrified. I've been out times when um, 
I shouldn't have been out. And it was a really scary experience, but it's also knowing that if I let my fear get best in me in this situation, I'm actually going to put myself in a very dangerous situation. And it's no different with OCD. It is exactly the same or any anxiety condition for that matter. It's like, uh, um, being able to recognize in the moment when you're experiencing that anxiety or that fear that like at the end of the day, this will consume me or I will let it pass and move on with my life and do whatever I want to do. Yeah, exactly. And I think getting kids into those passions early can be really helpful too, so that yeah. they can focus on what they love and not yeah. focus on, on anxiety or OCD or whatever's going on for them. Things that I think require the full brain, um, both the emotive side of the brain and, and the, the logical side of the brain. I think when you can find activities that overtake your mind, you know, playing guitar is one thing for me, but playing and singing at the same time is a total surrender to an experience where I'm not thinking about anything and I'm in more of like a, um, I don't know, just a free state of mind. And I'm just feeling something while I'm also doing something. And um, so whatever those activities might be for anyone, swimming, sports, uh, yoga, ballet, whatever it is, art, um, it's just really important that the hobby piece comes along along with this. Yeah. And I think it's good to point out because I think that gets missed. I think we just see a really sick child and we we shut everything down and we, we, we just see OCD. And we, or we just see the anxiety and we forget that they're a, a whole human being and they have other passions and they're just kids growing up. And we forget to tap into those things because we are just so hyper-focused on, on the OCD. Yeah. It's like even giving these kids a script, like um, before I came out with my story, which was in a very public way, um, being a business owner and seeing the problem in the space and, and, the fact that OCD is so misrepresented and, and poorly branded and diagnosed. Um, and I had only told a few people in my life, but I, I wrote a story in, um, in Fast Company and shared it, but also through the lens of being an employer. And I was very, you know, I was very scared about that. But what I had to do in my own mind was say, okay, if I go and write an article about how um, I had these thoughts about being a pedophile and like, they're going to hook, they're going to use that as the hook or they're going to use an editor somewhere is going to use one of these, you know, more traumatic, dramatic things as, as a hook for the story. I need to feel really confident that I can logically explain what the condition is and how that relates to my experience and how other people can be aware. And that education piece is so important, but also having those talking points, which is like when we originally did the intrusive thoughts.org site, it was like, Everyone has, you know, four out of five people say they have intrusive thoughts. One out of five, one out of 50 get caught in a loop. It can lead to all these negative things. But guess what? You're no more likely to act than anybody else. And, you know, here's a bunch of information you can learn about it. And it was just like, how do you package these really simple scripts almost? These really simple stories so that a kid can be like, oh, yeah, I have intrusive thoughts. Like, everyone has thoughts. Like, how can they make it, how can they make it dumb? They, they um, get in charge and power of it like everyone has those thoughts I just get a lot of I get I get really scared from them like that's a I neutralize it I normalize it by saying everybody has these thoughts like almost looking at you like what are you talking about of course you and other people have thoughts that you don't want or that are random or that are weird yeah and it's a really good tool not to keep using the word tool but intrusivethoughts.org is a powerful tool because a lot of times I'll talk to kids and they'll just think that you know I'm blowing smoke up their butt. They're just like, oh yeah, I bet you're just trying to make me feel better. And I, and I will just, I'll pull it up in session and I'll just like, look, here's on this website, you know, this yeah. is the same thing you're talking about. And for some reason, the website's so clean and it's so simple and it's very easy for even like, you know, a teenager or even a young kid to absorb that there's validity to that. They see it in writing, they see it on a website and they feel validated and they feel a hundred percent better because mm-hmm. they don't feel alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Thanks. Yeah, so I mean, to your point, you know, community, uh, hobby, um, mindfulness, uh, structured exposures, uh, like all of those things are tools in the wheelhouse that all have to be deployed at the same time. You can't just be, okay, well, Johnny 
uh, is having a major OCD moment. So we're going to let him be and take him to therapy once a week or whatever it is and, and hope he does his exposures. Like that's just, that's not how people like I made it where I did without even knowing what was going on. And I can't represent everyone's severity or what their personal experience is. But what actually got me the farthest was doing other things like staying busy and doing things that tried to get my mind as far away as possible. But yeah, if you, if you really care about, you know, your child, it is everything you can do slowly and lovingly and like without injecting your own anxiety. I mean, I can't even imagine if I was a kid and my parents were anxious and even their energy vibes about my anxiousness would be a horrific experience. And it would shut me down and make me not want to communicate with them at all, at all. Like I don't even like as an adult feeling like someone is looking at me like, uh, like, for example, um, after I came out with my story, I might stare off in space a lot or have a bunch of ADHD moments, whatever. But I would notice people looking at me differently, like, oh, God, what is he thinking about? And do you know how, like, effing annoying that is? Like, yeah. it is, it is like, let me, like, be me. Let me do yeah. my thing. What I need from you is if I come to you and I say, hey, I'm actually having a really hard time, the amount of information I disclose is the amount of information I disclose. You know, um, I'm going to right now, I just need X. Um, so just knowing that someone is there to support, knowing that their energy is calm, knowing that they're not anxious about this, that this is a solvable issue and that, um, you are going to help them by guiding them through encouraging them to do hobbies or hang out with people or taking them to community groups or volunteering or doing X or Y, like all these things really pull, um, a beautiful thing out of a person. So um, I would just encourage parents to check their own anxiety at the door and be patient and focus on the tool development and all of the other things that um, you can bring into your child's life because you don't want to create a situation where it's isolating. And when it's isolating is when it gets very dangerous. And when it's isolating is where you might think you want grandkids right now, but your kid may make a conscious choice not to have a child, not because they don't want a child, but because they don't want the anxiety that's going to come along with having harm thoughts about their child or, or pedophilia thoughts about their child and all the pain and anguish that's going to come from that. And that's a real reality. And so you've got to be thinking about the spectrum of, of the life that they're building and the tools that you're giving them to do that and uh, doing it in a calm and structured way. That's a good reminder because I think many parents – uh, are little, what I call overzealous with, they're so anxious because, you know, there's a major physiological component to this. And so they're bringing their own stuff to their parenting and they get overzealous in treatment. They only see, not always, but this, it, it's easy to fall into this where all mm -hmm. you see is OCD and you're constantly saying, was that a compulsion? Is that your OCD? Right. Is that your OCD? And I think that was a really good message for people to hear, you know, that, they're building their toolkit, and, but there's so many other components to their children. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I, I imagine if I didn't have OCD, you know, the way I would run my company is pretty much like, all right, let's bang this out. Let's knock it out. Let's get it done. Let's do this thing. This is good work. Let's push this. And, uh, you know, I would have to really think about how I manage a situation or how I manage people. If I had a child like that, uh, uh, look, I imagine it's extremely difficult as a parent. Um, I am not, I'm not a parent, so I don't know, um, how to manage that, but those kind of typical, like, let's roll up our sleeves and get it done thing is not necessarily going to be the attitude it's going to get there. It's going to be consistency. It's going to be, you know, compulsions are not something I'm going to play into. I'm going to give you emotional support. I'm here. If you need me, I'm going to fund the therapy. I'm going to understand my role and, um, in uh, supporting and not enabling. And I'm gonna encourage my kid to be participating in other aspects of life. And I'm gonna recognize that over the course of the next week and over the course of the next 10 years, that this kid is going to have varying levels of severity. Sometimes there will be weeks, months, maybe even years where their brain is kind of silent. 
and then it gets triggered by something new and it goes into total avalanche land. So it's again, another surfing reference, but it really is. It's like just rolling with the waves and sometimes it's like big and gnarly and sometimes it's, it's pretty peaceful and, and, you know, you're having a, a margarita in the water and, um, that's, it's the same thing. So I'm hoping that, you know, with, with, of course, uh, offering empathy to parents because it's got to be a really hard thing to watch your child in these types of cycles. Um, do an interesting, my mom, like, you know, with my mom now knowing all of these things that were going on as well, you know, what her, what her experience uh, was and what she wondered about when I was a kid, you know, so. Yeah. Well, and I think it's very much the same. I mean, speaking as a mom to kids with OCD, uh, you have to let go. Like you have to, you have to embrace uncertainty on a parent level and you have to, mindfulness is actually really helpful as a parent too. It's like, what's happening today? You know, today I'm having a good time with my son or today we're Mm going to do something fun. I'm not going to like catastrophize and think about what he's going to be like at 20 because that doesn't really help. That's such a great point. Like I love that point because in my own day to day, I have to, because of, you know, the what ifs of the condition, like I have to be comfortable that Right now, so relationship OC is a really good example. If you're in a relationship and your brain is constantly questioning and kicking off all these pointless thoughts, um, uh, one advice I got from um, a, a psychologist one time was uh, basically ask yourself, are you willing to leave this person today? And you're like, oh, well, no, no, I don't want to leave this person. Um, okay, well, then just enjoy today. You can always revisit this tomorrow. Right. And, it's like as dumb as that sounds, that's so important because it goes from is this the right person to what am I doing with my life to, you know, the thousands of other myriads of what ifs and yada yada. And it takes you to a place where you could even avoid that person. You could break off the relationship. So being able to, like you said, cut it down to today's good day, tomorrow's bad day. Uh, um, today, like we're actually having fun swimming right now or whatever it is we're doing, it's so important to just be in the moment. And like, again, all this hippie shit, like mindfulness, meditation, living in the moment, like all these things, like it sounds like a (laughs) hippie to be Eastern stuff, but that, that is what is the correct thing for this condition. I think that uh, I actually think this condition was probably figured out, you know, centuries and centuries ago through Eastern medicine or Eastern, you know, philosophy around meditation and yoga and, and all those things. Um, and now in our crazy always on lives where we don't make time for any of that and we're not trained any of those techniques, we don't know how to train the brain. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so powerful. And it, it's not even about being hippie. It's just, it's powerful stuff. And when you do it, like your happiness and your enjoyment for that moment is like tenfold. So yeah. Yeah. I'd say like, if if I'm in a situation, so, you know, I work a lot and I'm in New York and uh, travel a lot. I'm constantly at events. There's alcohol always, there's something going on. Um, and what I realize is when I start to go down a really negative spiral, it's usually pretty evident that not all the time, but I know how to solve it and how to solve it is not meditating once or even five, you know, for the next five days, exercising once or once for the next five days. It is about doing that every single day and knowing that in the next couple of weeks through that consistency and those ways that I'm slowing my mind down and I'm reducing the racing thoughts and et cetera, that that is where the payoff is going to be. And that's almost always the case for me. Yeah. And kids are sponges. So if they can develop that habit when they're young, then by the time they're our age, they'll, that'll just be part of their lifestyle, which would be beautiful. Yeah. It's putting in, it really is putting in the work. Yeah. I guess as and it might be that with our condition, you know, you got to put in extra work over the average 13 year old or whatever, but like it's, it's making those commitments putting in the work, meditating, exercising, doing hobbies, being involved in a community, being involved with family, doing volunteer project, teaching people about the condition, teaching your family about the condition, setting boundaries for what 
you want your family's involvement as you get older to be like all that stuff. So it's just proactive management. Yeah. Well, these are really good things. I really appreciate you coming on. These are good insights, I think, for parents to hear. I think it's just some stuff that parents have not ever heard before. So they can go to intrusivethoughts.org. Um, that's an awesome website. I think whenever you have questions um, or even just to, I'd like to just go on just to like watch stuff. But what else are you on? I know you have a lot of projects. Yeah, there's a lot going on. So, um, so yeah, our foundation is called Made of Millions. And the idea behind it is like, you know, over the last few years working on these mental health projects, all the change that I've seen is coming from people like you and people like me and people listening. Like the change is coming from people who've been affected by mental health. It's not coming from the big nonprofits or the institutions or public policy. And so it's really about bringing as many people together to um, push this DIY knowledge sharing, knowledge equality, um, DIY advocacy work kind of forward so that people can actually get access to it. So, um, so yeah, um, yeah, you can check out madeofmillions.com. Um, you know, we've been doing art, ex mental health art exhibitions, culture exhibitions in New York, London. We recently did a big ad campaign called Dear Manager, where we tackled mental health at work. We had some big big companies come out like Verizon media and major league soccer and some other ones come on and support it. Um, so yeah, so we are just having fun taking, you know, brand marketing world and bringing it into, into, uh, into the mental health space. And, um, yeah, be on the lookout this October. We're going to, we're going to be launching some, uh, pretty big stuff that we're very excited about. So. Awesome. We'll definitely be on the lookout because we need more people doing this kind of good stuff that you're doing. So thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Well, I hope that helped you get some insight and clarity in, you know, what it's like to struggle with OCD, specifically moral and harm OCD. Hopefully that gave you some ideas on how to help your kids and maybe even inspired you to take some more further action and to advocate for more OCD education and knowledge. Definitely go and check out intrusivethoughts.org. If you haven't been on that site, it's a popular website. I use it all the time in my practice and to link people to good resources and check out mateofmillions.com. That is a beautiful site as well. And maybe you can get active on both of those sites. So if you're enjoying the podcast, I hope you're finding that I'm providing you some good education please don't forget to hit a star on iTunes. Um, getting that feedback is super helpful. And if you have a few extra seconds, leaving a review is greatly appreciated. And to show my gratitude, I always like to end my show reading one of them. So BJobBH wrote, these podcasts are saving me as a parent of two children with OCD and another with anxiety. Sounds like my house. I wish I would have had this info years ago. Thank you for all your work, Natasha. Thank you for writing that. I really appreciate it. I also want to read one more. Um, AK310I said, so insightful and great to have the constant reminder of how to be a better parent because it's really hard to remember in the moment. Having her wisdom and practice, practicing it mindfully has been very helpful. Well, thank you both for leaving those reviews. I really appreciate it. And if you have something nice to say, leave a review and maybe I'll be reading your review next time. So I hope you find the sparkle in everything you do. And I'll talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. Hi, I'm a mom of a daughter with OCD. I live in South Africa. Um, and it's a country that doesn't have a lot of resources for children's mental health and specifically OCD. I really was at my wit's end on how I'm going to support my child, how I'm going to do ERP, how I'm just basically going to, to parent a daughter with OCD in a country that has little to no resources. And at times it got just debilitating for us as a family. And I was super lonely. Um, people weren't listening. I didn't have any support. The AT community has been an absolute lifesaver. Natasha has been instrumental in the past few months in helping us set up ERP challenges, going through them step by step, being supportive each and every step of the way. Joining the AT parenting community has been one of the best things I could have done for me and my family. Uh, Natasha has built this community and it is exceptional. I've learned so much, the support is fantastic. It's, it's just been life-changing for my daughter. Um, it's so nice to be able to ask her live questions in office hours. She's there, she responds. 
uh, her live videos every week where she asks us what we need her to talk about. Uh, also her forums, again, where you can ask questions. She's on there all the time. She is very present. The resources she has had provided, the worksheets, uh, there are so many things in this AT parenting community that are beneficial. Natasha gives you so much of her time and her expertise. She's there to answer your questions, so it's such a personal way of getting help and support when it's much needed. Personally, the community has helped me because I feel like I needed my support. And then you have the added bonus of this fantastic community of parents who are going through such similar things and suddenly you're empowered and have ways of accessing help and making a real difference to your family. And also just the support of all the other moms and dads, it's really good, you know? We laugh together, we cry together, we fail together, we succeed together, um, and, and everybody gets it. Everybody gets it, and it's such a nice community to be with, and I hope you join us. You won't be disappointed. Try it out. To learn more about how you can become a member of the AT Parenting Community, go to atparentingcommunity.com. Thank you.